0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Iwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And I have to tell you that when I saw Dan Coyce's novel's title in the catalog for HarperCollins, I did a little yell because for some of us, vintage contemporaries, it's more than a book title. It's actually kind of a way of life. And we're going to get into a little bit of that with Dan. But Dan, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. So fourth book, first novel. And what I didn't know until I was noodling around researching for the show is that you have an MFA and you promptly got that MFA and promptly stopped writing fiction for 15 years. Did I ever? What?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I did an MFA Basically, right out of college, I you know, I had a one-year break where I worked in a bookstore of one of America's great lost bookstores, the Bullseye Bookshop in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Oh, I know it. And then after that, I did an MFA, which I was just, you know, sorely unprepared for, and which I navigated and activated in sort of all the worst possible ways. I worked through it because I needed money. It was not a funded MFA, so I took out a bunch of loans. And uh, it it was all night classes while I was working during the day. So I was always exhausted. And I set myself to writing during that MFA, the kind of novel that I loved the most, the kind of novel at that time, the kind of novel that I thought, oh, this is what real writers write. A like edgy, dark, gothic, sexual thriller about an FBI agent, as I recall. And uh, it was just a total failure like i couldn't make my way through this book i didn't like writing it i didn't want to write it my advisor kept saying bless his heart this doesn't seem like you or your voice at all why are you trying to write this and the end result you know i like whatever i took a bunch of workshop stories and made them my thesis and i got my degree and then i sort of became convinced for some time after that that i must not be a real fiction writer because i was n- i couldn't write the kinds of books that i thought serious fiction writers wrote, which were, of course, not at all uninfluenced by all the vintage contemporaries I ever spent my college and graduate years reading.
0: Do you remember the first vintage contemporaries you picked up?
1: Yes, it was uh, Asa As I Knew Him by Susanna Kaysen.
0: Okay, so for me, that was my introduction to Thomas McGuane, the bushwhacked mm. piano, actually. I was like, who is this guy? And what is this book? And are you kidding me? Because, you know, I'm growing up in the suburbs of Massachusetts, right? And my parents were not reading Tom McGuane, let's put it that way. So it just felt like this whole world exploded in my hands. And I was like, who is this guy? What is going on? We can do this?
1: Why does the book look like that?
0: Why does the book look like that? Who are all these
1: other writers on the list in the back? And You know, those two books sort of represent um, the sort of the two poles of what vintage contemporaries, the imprint was doing. you know, for those listeners who don't know what that was, it was a paperback imprint, a trade paperback imprint run by Random House, a, a paperback imprint of Random House that w- launched in the late eight, the mid to late 80s, famously with Bright Lights, Big City, right. um, which was the, the first big hit and sort of funded and fueled the power of that imprint for a long time. But it was a real mix of favorites of the imprint's founder, Gary Fiskejohn, like Tom McGuane writers who'd sort of been languishing in other publishers' paperback backlists, or maybe hadn't made paperback at all for years or even decades and who the editors at Vintage were eager to break out, and then new young writers like Susanna Kaysen who were doing interesting things but who maybe weren't getting published in hardback at all who they could bring out as paperback originals.
0: Jill Eisenstadt, actually, is how I found her through Vintage Contemporaries as well, and she was part of that whole Bennington cohort yeah. With Donna Tart and Brett Easton Ellis, and I know I'm leaving some folks out, apologies to all, but I had no idea who she was, and there it was, and I was like, okay, I'll give it a whirl. So it really, it was kind of foundational for certain generation of us who are either you know, in the business still or you know, lifelong readers, what have you, but it's kind of trippy to me what the legacy, right? Barry Hanna was published as vintage contemporary for a long time.
1: I think back on myself as a grad student reading, you know, for example, Mary Gateskill. Yeah, it was published in Vintage Contemporaries, uh, you know, a, a brilliant book of short stories, Bad Behavior, which I as a, you know, suburban Wisconsin, 27 year old who then went to a state college and went straight to an MFA had zero life experience or ability to really process that book. And definitely not to try and replicate it in my own novel. But there I was like thinking I could write a like a Mary Gates gill book.
0: And Mary Gateskill felt like a really seminal moment for those of us, you know, sort of in our early 20s when that book came out and just thinking, oh, again, like, we can do this. This is why, like, it just.
1: Though, to be fair, it turned out I could not do that.
0: Well, yeah, I understand. That's okay. (laughs) Because now we have this really lovely novel called Vintage Contemporaries, which we are going to talk about. But I just sort of wanted to set the stage. You also did quite a great piece in The New Yorker about the designer Of the series. And I just, I thought that was just a lovely shout out to have her recognized. Okay, maybe a little late, but you know, there had been some sort of design world stuff that had covered her. Book design sometimes is really, really great. And sometimes you're like, oh, oh, oh. And I mean, I've been doing this for a really long time. And when you get that jacket and when you get that jacket, that is just absolutely spot on. And I think vintage contemporaries were fun and surreal and weird and just spoke to a bunch of us in a way that I think, you know, allowed them to become foundation. I mean, Ray Carver, right? Like yeah. Cathedral was a vintage contemporary. I well, still don't really understand. Yeah. yeah. I still don't really understand the peacock, but okay. Okay, fine. <laughs> well, the look
1: of those you know, the designer was a woman named Lorraine Louis, who was a, a staffer and then a freelancer for many years and was the art director responsible for the look of the entire line, as well as very, a lot of specific books jackets that are you know that remain you know very uh, seminal and recognizable to this day but one of the reasons those designs were so successful i thought was that they really spoke to the same things that the imprint and the books were meant to be speaking to they it sort of reeked of the future it seemed like you were seeing the future of literature and that was reflected in this like very Avant-gardish design. I mean, it read as avant-gardish to those of us who were not design people. It actually reflected a bunch of design trends going on in the 80s, as I found out later. But it seemed like from like beamed in from the future in the same way that a lot of the, a lot of these books seemed beamed in from the future literature. And they all had this uniform, these uniform design elements. So they looked handsome on a shelf together. I still have all my vintage contemporaries on a shelf upstairs, all lined up next to each other. And they were elegant, but also just a little bit otherworldly. I think always of the cover of Barry Hannah's airships, yep. which is, uh, if I recall correctly, a giant saxophone with airplane wings for some reason.
0: Yep. That's exactly it. It's, <laughs> you know, again, you look at it and go, okay.
1: Yeah. I want to know more about whatever led a designer to put this on the cover.
0: It's still Barry Hannah and it's still airships and it's still. It is a great, great read. I will say that edition is out of print. There is a new edition from Grove Atlantic that also has a great cover, but is not the vintage contemporaries cover. I will say it didn't make the transition from publisher to publisher. Coming back to your vintage contemporaries, story of friendship, we could call it a coming of age. I mean, it's early parenthood. It's not just New York in the 90s. There's a little bit of publishing too. The Squat's. Uh in New York, which I think a lot of folks have either forgot. I was in New York, actually, when that tank rolled down 13th Street, and my office was at 13th and Broadway. So I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. I also had friends living over there, too. Like, it was a wild moment in New York's history, and I wasn't really expecting that to pop in your novel. So can you take us back to starting this? Because my understanding is there's a little bit of a Dan Coyce midlife crisis (laughs) <laughs> that fuels a little bit of this very nice, excellent, smart story. But I I was not going to make a connection between Midlife Crisis and the creation of your vintage
1: contemporaries. Uh, when I hit 40, um, an, an unknown number of years ago, I sort of thought to myself, you know, I really like the journalism that I write. I'm happy with the nonfiction that I'm working on. But I had always thought of myself growing up and uh, as a person who made up stories and that part of my life seemed to have completely atrophied in part because of the experience of the MFA or rather the experience of how badly I handled my MFA. And I thought, this is dumb. I I would like to be a person who is inventing worlds and creating characters. And I remembered the sort of jazz, the jazzed feeling I got out of writing fiction back when I you know, was doing it in college and, and, in the early years of my MFA, and I wanted to recapture that in a way. And I just recently, um, around that time, profiled Linda Berry, the cartoonist for the New York Times Magazine. Readers our age remember Linda Berry's name from Ernie Pook's comic, which was her, her alternative weekly comic, which ran, you know, alongside Tom Tomorrow and Life in Hell and Hell in every alternative newspaper in America in the '80s and '90s in more recent years she's sort of reinvented herself as a creativity guru and writing teacher. She now teaches at the University of Wisconsin but also does workshops all over the country and i found her brainstorming and idea generation methods really fun and funny and inspirational and useful and like not sort of woo-woo in ways that turned off my you know 40-year-old jaded guy brain. They really touched something deep inside, which was the same thing that I was trying to activate when I felt like I needed to activate this different creative part of me. So I just basically every night after my kids would go to bed at like 1045 or whatever, I would sit down at my dining room table or out on the porch or wherever. And I would basically spend 45 minutes or an hour doing a couple of sort of Linda Barry styled, just whatever comes out, comes out exercises but meant to create fiction, not memoir. So each time I wrote, I made sure that the character was as different from me as possible from the get-go. So I wouldn't be tempted into just writing memoir. The easy way to do that was to just, was to make her a woman. And then I just started writing. And I did that basically every night that I had free time for several years, generated enormous piles of fictional material, which all seemed to be revolving around similar themes of writing and friendship and young parenthood but some of them were set in the 90s and some of them were set in the 2000s and at some point i said all right either this is a book or it isn't and it's time to fish or cut bait and figure out what this is so i put on my editor brain and i read it everything and i said oh with a bunch of jigsaw puzzle type work i can make this all the same person Uh, i can draw connections between all these things and i can this could be you know 200 pages out of a novel so Now, what can I do to make that a real thing? And that was the birth of this book. It really did come out of of needing to write anything, literally writing anything, and then only later figuring out how it could be a book.
0: And then that's when you got M's voice, because we have M and Emily. And I am going to ask you, I know it seems a little obvious, but we have two women called Emily who are not the same person. This is not sliding doors. How did we get the Emily, Emily nomenclature?
1: one of the main things that the book is about is about friendship and not any kind of friendship but the kind of like all consuming friendship that you te- that you often fall into in your 20s when you're really in search of someone who you think sees you and understands you and i have i had friendships like that at that age where we basically sort of annihilated each other and turned into one you know one cohesive being that everyone everyone else thought of us as as these two people but as a unit and at some point while writing this i just thought oh it would be funny to uh just have these two friends have the same name to like you know to highlight the way that they sort of disappear into each other and i sort of wrote noted that down and started playing with it and i enjoyed writing that i enjoyed the kind of what seemed to me to be a kind of pleasant confusion created in the reader. And then I enjoyed the ways that I could both alleviate that confusion through very clear writing, or sometimes augment it or play with it or uh, or toy with readers a little bit by using the confusion. And of course, what I never realized is that in the long run, that would be a gigantic pain in my butt. It would lead to like endless conversations with the poor copy editor who is trying to keep track of which Emily was which. And then it would lead to a million readers being like, Oh, I enjoyed this book. Except for I never knew which Emily was doing what.
0: Oh, I kept both Emily's really distinct.
1: I'm so glad to hear it.
0: I know it. It was honestly, it was very easy. I I did notice that in some of the reviews, people were like, "Uh, I had no problem keeping them straight." Honestly, because I mean, to me, their personalities were so different, and that is right. possible to have that all-consuming friendship when your personalities are just not anywhere kind of in alignment beyond the fact that you believe art is the thing that should drive everyone. You know, your right. art form may not be the same.
1: I think they're legibly different to people outside of themselves in these kinds of relationships. And I will also say for the record that I did have a number of like Jennifer's and Amy's tell me, oh, I'm so glad to see my struggle represented in literature, the struggle of a person with a common name and all my friends have the same name as me.
0: Right. I mean, I've been around those packs. That obviously has never happened to me. But <laughs> I've been around this and you're just like, oh, which? Wait, which? Right. Uh, But honestly, on the pages of a book, it's much easier than it is at a cocktail party when you're yelling across the room. Right. All right. So we've got the two Emilies and we've got New York in the 90s, which I kind of desperately miss. I mean, it was dirty. It was weird. I mean, when I came back to New York, the East Village was not the East Village; it was Alphabet City, mm-hmm. right? Like that doesn't even exist anymore, and it certainly did not have fancy buildings. And you know, I mean, it was—it was really New York, yeah. and, Alphabet
1: City, or Lower East Side, the other name that, right? had, that often had the Lower East Side in Spanish, basically.
0: And it's so wild to me how quickly it all sort of came back. As I was reading vintage contemporaries, I was like, "Oh, right." right okay i get to be you know a little younger as i'm flipping through this book even i mean what's you come into 2007 and then 2015 i think right we don't come no, straight up goes, to the present it goes
1: day. The f- it doesn't go all the way up to the present day there's two sections in the book in the 90s which are uh 91 and 93 and then there's uh, sections in 2005 and 2007 so we get the last decade of the 20th century the first decade of the 21st century and uh, we we get to see these characters across both those eras. Those '90s years on the Lower East Side. That was it was around that time that I first visited New York. Uh, it was in '95 that I first lived in New York for one summer in an apartment not at all unlike uh, <laughs> Emily and and her college friends' first apartment with fungus growing under a futon. It was very fun to write about that era, but really I was writing about an era just before I really knew the city. And I made that choice very specifically because one thing, you know, that summer I I lived in Alphabet City uh, in 95. I was almost completely blind to the ferment that was happening around me. That was a couple of years after the tanks rolled on 13th Street, but there were still active battles. Happening with squats all over the Lower East Side, community gardens were being built and then uh, seized and taken over and built on top of. You know, there was so much going, Incredible art and music and writing was happening in that in that neighborhood. But I, you know, I was twenty two or whatever and essentially blind to all that stuff. And the memory I have now of going through New York that summer with like the blinders of youth on and not understanding at all what a vibrant and amazing cultural moment. I had, I had landed in the middle of and was completely immune to is like deeply embarrassing. You know, it's like, it, it feels somewhat crummy to have missed all that stuff. And so I wanted to write a little bit earlier about someone who lands in that same position at first doesn't realize this stuff at all, but then finds her ways into these different movements and moments, finds herself passionately driven to contribute to them and Defines her life in many ways by the decisions and actions that she takes in those years, having to do with the art that she makes, and the writers that she meets, and the the political action that she takes in the in the form of the squats—these um, these these big apartment buildings that had been abandoned, that people moved into, made their own, and then were eventually, in many many cases, evicted from by force by the police.
0: There's a sense of serendipity from that period from the '90s in New York that we don't have anymore. And it's not just because you're young and there's so much possibility when you're young because, of course, you know, bad decisions, whatever. But there is, the city, the landscape has changed pretty significantly and there's less opportunity to just sort of have these random moments. And partially that's technology, right? I was just talking to someone about this yesterday. Like, it's harder to get lost unless your phone runs out of charge or you leave your phone at home. Like, it's... Physically difficult to get lost. And I kind of miss that chance, right? Like all of those random moments, all of which you seem to capture pretty well in Vintage Contemporaries.
1: One of the things that New York has always been great at is forcing people into uncomfortable or unusual serendipitous account encounters Mm -hmm. with people. They never would have otherwise. met, And I agree with you that, that even in New York, that that seems harder now in part because we're all in a lot of ways in our own little social bubbles, which are very rigorously enforced, not only by tech, but by, you know, social codes and mores of today, which I think are a little bit different than they were in the nineties, an unwillingness perhaps reasonable unwillingness to brook discomfort in our everyday lives because it's so unusual to experience now for so many people. But the the kinds of scrapes and scuffles and encounters that Emily gets into, M gets into in the 90s were the kinds of things that for me in that era You know, really changed the way I thought about myself and my relationship with the world. And I really wanted to capture that all these different people you meet, forge momentary or maybe lifelong relationships with based on nothing but that you happen to be in the same diner really late one night with no one else to talk to. That seems really valuable to me. And I often do miss, you know, those kinds of meetings. And it's not impossible to have them now, but they do seem a lot less likely.
0: The evolution, too, of the Emily's friendship felt really organic and true to me. Like, you know, sometimes you lose track of people, and then sometimes you reconnect, and it's like, oh, wow, right? It's been 20 minutes. And even if the story is slightly different, you can pick up right where you've left off. And and there is some—I have a couple of those still. Yeah, I was wondering, do you have Emily's in your life? I I do, actually, and it's pretty great, and it's been really— rewarding. And sometimes it shows up in different cities, too, and not just New York. It gets complicated. Lori Colwyn is a huge influence on your vintage contemporaries. And I honestly had not thought of Lori Colwyn in a really long time. Like I read Home Cooking when it came out in 92, which is also Mm -hmm. the year she died unexpectedly. And I thought, oh, this is kind of clever, but this is not for me. I don't do dinner parties. I I was at a different phase of my life, running around and getting into trouble and all sorts of things like that. And I appreciated what she was trying to do purely from a structural standpoint, but it was not for me as it were. And you came to her much later than I did. I think you were not reading her when she was. No, I was of, not reading her no. contemporaneously
1: okay. when she was alive. I got okay. her much later on the advice of a, a bunch of friends okay, who said, you know, I love you sort of universally. I love this writer and she, it seems like something that that would be really on your wavelength. And the things that I fell in love with about Lori at first wasn't, I didn't read Home Cooking first. That's been her most successful book over the years, particularly after her death when it has achieved a kind of sort of cult status among multiple generations of young writers, readers, and cooks. But the books that I first read of hers were her stories and her novels. The one I read first that made the most immediate and instant impact on me is called Happy All the Time. And it's the story of two young married couples in, you know, early 1980, maybe late 1970s, New York City, who, you know, it's the story of them meeting each other, of them falling in love, them getting married, them becoming friends, their friendship, having extremely minor, rocky moments. And then at the end, everyone being like, well, wasn't that great? There's I mean, there's almost no conflict in this book whatsoever. It consists entirely of people saying witty things to one another having minor setbacks, and then overcoming them with almost no difficulty at all, and, and being kind and nice to each other, even when they're in bad moods. And reading this, I thought, how is this, even a novel, why is it that I am loving the experience of reading it so much? Why is it making me so happy? One of the drives when I first started the writing the material that eventually became this novel Was to try and write stuff that made me feel as happy when I was writing it as reading Laurie Colwyn's books made me feel when I was reading them. And that led me, in a lot of cases in this book, to steer away from darkness, to steer away from whatever. There's obviously very little in the way of gothic psychosexuality and vintage contemporaries. (laughs) It's not Mary (laughs) Gateskill at all, but it just made me sort of look for the light all through this. And like bad things happen to the characters in this book sometimes. I thought, all right, it makes sense for that to happen. But the characters remain happy and loving to one another, even when things are hard, even when they're depressed, even when there's no reason, even you know, get judging by sort of what's going on in their lives that they should be. Because I just found that really inspiring and gorgeous to read and a kind of worldview that I recognize in my own life and in the lives of the people I love, but I don't always see in novels. And also, I mean, just from a practical matter, I was writing every night at 1045 after my kids went to bed. If I was going to like make myself do that, I'd better be having a good time. Right. I'm not going to do that if I'm like diving headfirst into, you know, a stew of my own neuroses. That is, that is not what I need at 1045 at night.
0: I also want to shout out Laurie's story collection, The Lone Pilgrim. One of my favorite Laurie Colin stories is in this book. And I always have to double-check the title, though. It's, uh, it's called An Old-Fashioned Story. Mm-hmm. And a lot of how you describe Happy All the Time actually is present in this one story. But it's very much of its moment. I think she wrote it sort of in the 70s, maybe early 80s kind of thing. And there's sort of a timelessness to it, but then there's some relationships where you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is Wouldn't not happen going... happened that out. way now. This is, you know, the brothers and our, <laughs> and our girl and it was just, it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, right. I remember reading this. I remember reading this a while ago. And so coming back to it is really lovely. And she does like Lori Moore, right? And you did its fabulous, fabulous profile of Lori Moore for the New York Times Magazine last summer, actually, June, mm-hmm. when the last book came out. I am homeless if this is not my home, which I quite liked. Lori Moore is similar. She's like, oh, why should I chew through my left arm, essentially, while I'm making art? Like, why? I don't have to be confessional. I can just... Tell you a story. And you can see a lot of that in the last book, right? I mean, which is essentially yeah. a very wild love story.
1: <laughs> slash ghost story, slash right. zombie thriller. That's a really interesting comparison. I love that we're now talking about the two lorries who maybe maybe at some point were mistaken for one another on the literary scene. I see real similarities in the the brightness of affect in a lot of their work. I would maybe argue that Lori Moore, when you reread her at least when I have reread her as an adult as opposed to the 20-year-old I was when I first encountered her I see a lot more darkness hiding in the fringes of those books and a lot more desperation in her characters like I think of the, you know the character in real estate her classic story who thinks of something horrible and says it makes her laugh and then she, and then it goes ha 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 for over two pages. <laughs> and you know when I interviewed Laurie about this didn't make it into the profile but I asked her about that moment because it's one of my favorite moments in all of literature. It's so unexpected and unusual and insane. I said, "Okay, first of all, how did you did you type every ha or did you copy and paste them like a normal person?" And she said, "No, I typed every single one. I just kept typing ha until I right sitting there at my desk until I felt like I should stop." And I said, "That is amazing. How I mean, like, how did you know how many there was, should be? And she said, "Well, I knew." But then when I published it in the New Yorker, they paid me by the word, so they wouldn't let me put in that many haws. So I had to cut them by like three quarters, and I lost a lot of money that way. But like, it's clearly that character uh-huh. that is the that is literally brightness covering total desperation and and anxiety on that character's part. Like as Lori told me. Oh, yes, she's screaming. It's just that she's doing it in this way. And so I see a lot of similarities between those two Laurie's. I don't know that I have anything Laurie Moore-ish in me. And I don't know that I could have made myself write a Laurie Moore type of story at that point in my life. Um, Laurie Colwyn, what I find is that she acknowledges the difficult things that can happen to her characters. And she doesn't ignore them. But she simply insists that they don't have to be the most important part right that they can glide over them sometimes and that's totally fine
0: and i will tell you i've been a bookseller for a really long time and yes the laurie's got confused all the time right
1: all the time and i'm just like are we talking food food? She writes, like domestic fiction <laughs> she has short stories and novels yeah. you got all her? the time all Man. the time food laurie or wisconsin laurie
0: Oh, I didn't even think of it as Wisconsin Lori, but yeah, no. Well, I, I grew up like, in
1: Wisconsin, so we all thought of her as Wisconsin Lori.
0: Birds of America Lori.
1: <laughs> she very evidently hated Wisconsin while she was there.
0: Oh, shoot. <laughs> didn't know that. Um, no, I always called her Frog Hospital Lori or Birds of mm. America Lori. It, yeah. You just sort of witch and yeah. and people's eyes would either get a little wider and you would know that you'd hit right. or they'd be like, food, what?
1: Excuse me. The chicken. Birds.
0: Are we talking Frog about the Hospital? book with recipes, <laughs> right. right? And like you just sort of do the the questioning until you get where you're going. But I do want to talk about influences for a second because yes, you were a bookseller. You have written about the theater too. One of your early books is about Angels of America and what a force that is. And I have only seen the filmed version by Mike Nichols, which is pretty terrific.
1: A solid version, yeah.
0: It's, it's great, but I have not yet done the back-to-back theater productions, and that's on me. <laughs> I live in a city where I can do this, and I just never quite figured out how to make the time. But the way you talk about Angels in America too, in Vintage Contemporaries captures that moment where everything shifts, right? And we talk about being queer in a different way, and it just—that play is so important and so monumental. My understanding, though, you were also a theater kid. In college, I
1: was, yeah. In fact, I was a theater major in college and have retained a real lifelong love of watching and performing that. And I only really get to tap the performing bit every now and then, like singing karaoke, for example, which I did last night, which is why my voice sounds like this. Angels in America was a really galvanizing experience for me Mm -hmm. when I did first see it. Um, It was, in fact, that summer of 95 when I was in New York City. I saw it on Broadway. With, I, you know, with the replacement cast who, you know, the replacement cast of Angels in America was itself full of incredible, you know, Cherry right. Jones was in it, F. Murray Abraham, you know, like incredible actors where you're just like the third Roy Cohn. But it really did transform for me my ideas of what theater could do on a stage, like the way it could move you and the way a play could move, but also the how it could address politics and the personal and make them matter to each other in every second of every scene like i had never really thought about that before and it was, I mean, it was just a huge artistic moment for me and yes, yeah, so years later when the i think 25th anniversary of its first production in san francisco was coming up um, i got together with isaac butler um, who's a great cultural critic and, and theater critic and theater creator he's uh, he also is a playwright and we did an oral history of the play You know, we knocked it out in like a month for Slate, the magazine where I work uh, for my day job. And it was used like 15,000 words. It was really astonishingly long by internet article standards. But every person we talked to was so excited and enthusiastic to talk to us. And there was so much amazing material that we could not even fit in this article that we immediately began to think of it as a book. We thought there are so many more stories to tell. And the play has had such a life in the years since its initial productions that we thought, well, let's, this should be a book. Let's keep on working with an eye toward making it a book. Let's sock away all this other material. Then yeah, about two years later, we published it as a book with Bloomsbury right around the time that the new production came to Broadway, the one with Andrew Garfield um, that won a number and Nathan Lane that won a number of Tonys once again um, and sort of cemented the play for a new generation, I think as a really crucial Work that not only speaks to its time, the AIDS crisis, but also to the current time and a lot of the political and social struggles we're facing today.
0: Yeah. And part of why I raise it, I mean, it is such a seminal piece of art, but the way you use it in your novel and Mm -hmm. the way it clearly influenced the way you think as a writer and a cultural critic. I mean, anyone who's creating art, right? You're pulling from all of these disparate places, you're pulling from whatever influence. I mean, you've written about music too. I do have questions about the moving your family around for that book. <laughs> that's all a different conversation, I think. But in terms of pulling from different places to feed the art and the story, right? Like vintage contemporaries is a moment, but Laurie Moore and Laurie Colwin are also a moment. Angels in America
1: is a the moment. Music the music they listen to is a moment right? for them. And the other, the shows that they try to make and the things that they're reading, the vintage contemporaries, my novel is littered with quotes and lines and moments from <laughs> oh, the books yes, that the books that emily is reading throughout because to anyone who loves art who, who loves culture for anyone for whom art is as important as it is for these characters what you are thinking about and the way you view the world and what you are talking about reflects that when i get together with isaac for example uh and we're having coffee we ask about each other's kids and each other's wives, and we check in on how everything's going with our careers. But really, what we want to talk about is, did you see this play? Oh, my God, it was terrible. Did you Have you heard this song? It's changed my life. We still want to talk about that stuff. Those references litter our conversation and are clearly fueling what's ticking in our brains. And this is a novel about people who, for whom art means everything and who are trying to figure out their relationships. To art Are they the mm-hmm. people who make art? Are they the people who foster it in other people? What does it mean to make art? What does it mean to discover that you, you don't make art, but you in mm-hmm. fact can make other people's art better? Those are the kinds of people who never stop thinking about this stuff. And so I wanted the book to be littered with these kinds of references that were timely and right and appropriate and would reflect the way that the art was changing them even as they were living their lives.
0: I mean, for me, it's really great to see younger writers and younger readers coming to Kathy Acker, for instance. I mean, Mm -hmm. Alexandra Kleeman wrote an amazing introduction to one of the reissues, and she's not the only one, but that's the first one that comes to mind. To have a new generation of readers come to someone like Acker, who was doing wild stuff textually, early on, wild stuff with story and literal text, is such a pleasure. It's really, you know, you see people playing with. Genre and the conventions of genre, and blowing things up, and not blow. And I'm just like, do whatever you're going to do in service of the story, right? Like, did do you we read actually... the
1: the Kathy Acker mm-hmm. biography that came out last year?
0: I started it, and as soon as I have more time, it will get finished. But I probably made it at least a third of the way through, and I like the book. And Ira bought it when he was at Simon, so I was predisposed oh, okay. to like it. It was more a matter of, do I have time right now? I it's don't really, always yeah, it's have It's definitely time. worth
1: finishing. It's super interesting. Okay, it's called Eat Your Mind by Jason McBride. And it's really well researched, but it's also, it's a quite a good, I think, textual analysis of what she was doing. And I think for people who haven't even read her, but are interested in, in why she mattered at that time so much and why people were so shocked by what she was doing on a page. It's very good on that.
0: Oh, that's really good to hear. Hey, speaking of influences, you did a podcast about Martin Amis. Yes,
1: I just still do wanna-
0: Okay. So what is going on? So how did you decide what, I mean, you start obviously with the Rachel papers and it's been a minute since I've read Amos straight up. I think London fields like sometime in the nineties and
1: then you sort of drifted away from him. So many of us did. Yes, I
0: did. And I just, I want to put him back into context for a second for you because I mean, obviously he died last year, but the Rachel papers episode that you did, I thought was going to send me screaming back to all of it. And it's really just time. It really is. The man was prolific
1: he sure the Man was. had
0: a lot of books, but how did you guys settle on the idea of the Martin Chronicles?
1: The podcast? Yeah, it's called the Martin Chronicles. And it is a, a passion project by three critics who have day jobs, uh, with plenty to do, but who just really wanted to talk to one another about Something interesting. So it's me and Jason Zinneman, who's the comedy critic at The Times, and Paul Sagel, who's a book critic at The New Yorker. For all three of us, Amos was a crucial early life writer who sort of defined our ideas of what a book could do and also what an author's career looked like, what it meant to be a serious author. You know, we all came of age during the era in which you know, he was famously leaving one publisher for another publisher and changing agents and demanding a million pounds for literary mm-hmm. fiction and also weighing in on issues of the day, sometimes temperately, sometimes very intemperately. I just particularly have this picture of him as, oh, this is an author's life. When someone wants to engage with the world through literature, this is the way they do it. They write novels, they write essays, they opine they make waves, they lose friends. Like this is, this is the crap that authors do. It's such a rich text, his writing. And we both had such mixed, we, all three of us had such mixed feelings about the books we once loved that we now maybe viewed a little right. bit differently. The later books that we'd never read because we'd drifted away from him or found him annoying or irritating or just plain old. And so we wanted to interrogate those. And the books are so dense With material that it's very easy to just pick a single book and talk about it for an hour and find so much richness and Mm -hmm. ugliness um, to dive into. And it's really been one of the great critical experiences of my life talking to these two critics about these works in great depth. After Amos died earlier this year, we did an episode about a couple months later, we did an episode about his novel, which is not a memoir, but really is actually a memoir inside story and tried to put his life and career in some kind of perspective. We'll be doing an episode shortly about um, the zone of interest, which is his novel about Auschwitz, which has just been turned into a film by Jonathan Glazer. that is definitely going to be part of the awards conversation this year. That is quite astonishing. It's just so great to, for, to have a writer whose work rewards critical thinking Always, whether you love or hate Amos, or like I think most readers both love and hate him at different Mm -hmm. times, it's like impossible to deny that he, to deny that everything he writes and does gives you something to chew on. And that is what I want as a writer and critic. And it's really fun to chew on it with those two.
0: And again, I mean, if I think about where Martin Amos sort of sits in the current world, right, there's a certain segment of the population who, when I say Martin Amos, immediately has an opinion immediately has an experience of either him or his work or something. Mm-hmm. And then we have a whole another generation. Who's kind of like, what?
1: Right. Or like, Oh, is he that old guy who sometimes says terrible things about, you know, Muslims, which is, is also another thing that he is. Yeah. Uh, is he that old guy who like sort of weirdly fetishizes Jewish women. Yes. He's also that guy. W- one thing that has been nice about doing this podcast is that w- we have a number of listeners, younger listeners who are, You know, very avid readers who had not really experienced Amos at all, who have been inspired to dip into the books, into the work because of the podcast, and who have had very similar reactions to us, both of total delight and joy at the like fizzing energy of those sentences and ideas, and slight embarrassment and annoyance at all the things that he can't stop himself from doing. But like, what a joy to have an author who can inspire all of that in you. Uh, And who made it his life's work to inspire all of that and all of us.
0: Well, and I love the fact that we can have a changing relationship to art, right? Like home cooking when I was in my early 20s and definitely not doing cocktail parties, dinner Mm parties, like that was just not part of my world. But to come back to it now as I'm prepping for the show, I was like, oh, yeah, actually, I think I need to dog ear this recipe because Mm -hmm. I am going to road test it. (laughs) A
1: fun thing about writing a novel that leaps a decade plus is that you can start to track your characters changing relationships to the art that's important to them. A big moment, there is sort of a a Laurie Cullen-esque character in this book, an Mm -hmm. older writer named Lucy, who M, our heroine, um, becomes friends with and becomes sort of tangled up in the career of, um, and a big source of conflict between M and Emily, the two friends, is that Emily, the sort of hip, angry theater director, finds Lucy's books totally boring sounding and can't imagine why anyone would like them. And it's a big moment in the rekindling of their friendship 15 years later when Emily, now 15 years older and a little bit different, comes back to those books and says, Oh, I get it now. Like, I get why you fell in love with these books and why she mattered to you.
0: I mean, when I look back on some of the books that I really, really loved when I was younger, I mean, did I go through an updike phase? I did because I was, you know, growing up in Massachusetts and sure. looking for That's like It's required hand- by law. It is, but also looking for a handbook to understand like what. I-
1: Why are these wasps acting like this? What is
0: this? You know, I still love certain Cheever stories and will always, always love them. But when I look at the evolution of sort of my reading and my connection to writers, I mean, when I discovered the Bluest Eye, and I was probably a little young the first time I read it. Mm-hmm. But I needed that book. I needed Maxine Hong Kingston. I needed James Well, I needed all of this stuff that I was sort of rolling around in because that's what we had. And, you know, I probably read The Color Purple a little early the first time, too, <laughs> because... Well, that
1: was a rite of passage for people of our generation. Yeah, without Reading a doubt. that like two years too early.
0: And also the stuff that aged well. Well, I also, honestly, did I read Flowers in the End? Yeah, I did. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, you grew up in the suburbs. You learned you know, there's certain stuff that gets passed around, right?
1: How many how many parts of Clan of the Cave Bear did you dog-ear uh, you
0: stuck you it off your actually, shelves? You know what? I actually escaped that, and I'm oh, not oh. sure how. There's a lot of Michener in my, like, there was a lot of Mitchner in my parents' bookcase, and it's like, oh, I think that is honestly how I missed it. But to know that your relationship can change, right, mm-hmm. with a writer that you loved or a book that you loved, and that stuff gets replaced. I mean, When I think of so much of the good work that's happening now, right? Like, and part of why I bring up Cheever is not just my experience of reading Cheever, but you know, you have this day job. You're at Slate. You're the books guy. You're also the parenting podcast guy. You do a lot at Slate. I'm still amazed you had time to write a novel at 10:45 at night. Because, dude, what?
1: Just an hour a day, forever, and eventually you can write a novel too.
0: (laughs) Okay, but you got there. You got there, and we get to read it. But Emma Klein and the guest was one of my. Favorite books this summer. It was propulsive. It was wild. It was essentially a take on Cheever's story, The Swimmer, right? Only it's a young girl who is a young woman, I should say, who's making her way through sort of the Hamptons party circuit and leaving a wake of destruction wherever she goes. That was one of Slate's top 10 of the year The Fraud by Zadie Smith, James McBride, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, which is our book of the year. I was very happy to see that as well. And oh, Burnham Wood, Eleanor Catton. 10 years after The Luminaries shows up with this very funky, smart, wry take on climate change and money and all sorts of stuff. Can we just talk about how you guys do your list of 10? Those are the four that sort of stuck out for me because they were books I love too. But can we talk about how you balance, you know, what you want to do in terms of your book coverage at Slate and and what you're trying to do sort of, well, separately as a writer?
1: So uh, in addition to writing at Slate, um, I edit a little bit, and one of the things I edit is our, is our books coverage overall, which primarily means that I edit Laura Miller, um, who's our lead book critic, I think one of the best book critics in the world, it's like a true genius of figuring out what an author is doing, thinking about what it means, and also thinking about why readers and fans love and don't love the books that they do and what the relationships we build up with those books are. And so, you know, each year we each turn in, we each craft a top 10 list and we sort of talk to each other a little bit as we're making those. She's the lead critic. So I always let her have first crack at stuff. Um, There's stuff on her list that perhaps would have also been on my list if we didn't have her, God forbid. Um, But then my list often represents sort of like slightly more offbeat, often small press stuff that I worry might otherwise sort of go unnoticed. But Laura's list is the showcase list, right? That is those are Slate's top ten books of the year. And she's so widely read and so smart about what the novel is doing right now that I always particularly look forward to the usually five novels that she picks out on that 10, top ten list, and you um you know, you name most of them. And with Zadie and McBride, particularly, they were the focus of two pieces she wrote this summer that I think were completely, for me were totally revolutionary in the way that I think about what the novel can and should be doing right now. It was a review of Zadie Smith's novel, which also sort of served as an assessment of her career, looking back over all the books and the way that Smith has responded to, and in some ways it seemed to Laura, bent and shaped her own impulses in fiction in response to certain critical responses that she's mm-hmm. received. And the way that the fraud, Laura thought, was a kind of repudiation of a lot of those uh, shifts and bends, and a re-embrace of the things that make Zadie Smith the best at what she does. And in that way, I, her review, I think, ran counter to some of the what I saw as the you know received wisdom that I was reading out there about the fraud from other critics who who thought that you know that Zadie Smith writing. Historical fiction was just, oh, how disappointing that our great chronicle of modern times is writing about the past. But I think Laura saw through that and wrote something really smart about what a novelist can do and what she can be thinking about. And then with McBride, she wrote a beautiful, critical profile, which is a form I really love. Um, it's a form that Slate like, doesn't get to work in that often, right? frankly, because we're small and we don't get access. Um, but, you know, it's, that's what my Lori Moore profile for the Times mm-hmm. Magazine was. It's where you get, you talk to a writer, you visit with them, but you're also doing a close critical read of the work and you're drawing connections between your conversation and the work itself. It's not just, I'm riding in a car with whatever, with whatever author, and here's the frozen yogurt we had, and here are some funny things she said. It really is an attempt to engage with a person and with the work at the same time. And Laura's piece on James McBride made it a real... Honest and good faith argument for him as essentially the great American novelist, yeah. because of the way his work doesn't focus, as she says, on the sort of traditional American literature mode of the single her- hero facing the elements or facing society or rising from the ashes, but instead, because it focuses on community, the birth of a community and the and the the relationship of community to one another and how foundational that is for a country that right now is basically trying to figure out how we can all interact with and live in the same place as one another, even though we don't agree. And that seems so smart, um, such a smart way of thinking about that book. Um, And so I was so happy to see it on her top 10 list. I'm so happy to see Zadie Smith's on the top 10 list. I'm so happy to see Burnham Wood, a book I completely love, a book I've had so much fun arguing about the ending of with to everyone I know. It, you know, It's, such, it's such a real joy to work with Laura generally. And it's great when she takes on these big topics um, and really applies her noggin to them. She comes up with stuff which just makes me think about contemporary publishing in a totally different way.
0: Which is what we should be looking to from books. I mean, for me, right, and not just because I'm a bookseller, I'm talking about Miwa as a reader for a second, is I do want to engage in big ideas, but I don't necessarily need to feel like I'm being fed my cultural vegetables, right? Right. Like, I did school, I liked school, it turns out, I've discovered, as I go forward with all of the shows that we do for Port Over, I should have done more independent study. (laughs) Apparently, I should have done more, which when I was coming, like gap years didn't exist when I was going, could have used one of those too. Mm -hmm. But, you know, all of the things that get us to a place where we're engaging with other people, right? Whether they're people we recognize or people we don't, I just, books are one of the best ways to be able to do this, right? And I do, the theater is wonderful too, but like books are portable, man. This brings me back to vintage contemporaries. The fact that you could slide, a paperback in your pocket or in your backpack or whatever. And then, you know, it was always with you. You didn't have to worry about whether or not it was charged. You could just be entertained no matter what. I mean,
1: not only entertained but immersed, right? Like that's the thing that books do that other art forms struggle to do often, which is that they take you out of your mind and body completely and put you in a different place while you're reading them. And that I think is why they have such a profound effect, particularly on young people is that it is an out-of-body experience that allows you to all of a sudden synthesize other people, their emotions, their politics, their experiences in ways that you never could have otherwise because you simply don't have the ability to step out of your shoes and into someone else's.
0: Right. And that seems like a really good place to wrap. But before I let you go back to your day job and everything else. Is there anything I missed about your vintage contemporaries? Is there anything you wanted to add? I don't want to give anyone any spoilers because I want them to enjoy meeting the Emilies the way I enjoyed meeting the Emilies, but is there anything else we need to add?
1: You know, we talked a little bit about the Squatch, which I think are a fun and interesting plot point, but I'm happy for people to come to that on their own. For people who listen to this podcast, particularly who are interested not only in reading, but in the kind of larger picture of what books Mean and what the book industry is and does, I think vintage, vintage Contemporaries has a lot of fun material on on how books get made and on the role that editors, in particular, play in that um, in that process. Emily, uh, our heroine, starts out in the beginning of the book as a sort of fledgling literary agent. By the end of the book, she's moved to a different part of publishing. She is uh, uh, an editor at a house. And she also has changed the way she thinks about herself. At the beginning of herself, she, of the book, she thinks about herself as a writer who hasn't written anything yet. And at the end of the book, she has stopped thinking about herself as a writer, but the book doesn't posit that as a failure. The book suggests, I think, that what she has found is a way of, of contributing to and making art that doesn't involve being the artist, but is just as crucial to those artists. And as someone who's both a writer and an editor, I like having something out in the world that is a testament to the role that a good editor can have in a writer's life.
0: Yeah. And the bookseller agrees with you. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes I'm a podcaster, but also fundamentally a bookseller and the bookseller I, says oh. I'm yes, happy to absolutely. say that
1: there is one very nice bookseller in the book as well. Although he and thank Emily's relationship listening. doesn't
0: work. Over is a bond That's and okay. Production. Booksellers and you help know, other readers kind find us. Please Dan the show Coise, Thank you so much you for joining podcast. us on Port Over. Vintage Contemporaries is out in paperback now.
1: Thanks so much.